Teaching Journey Podcast acknowledges the traditional custodian of the country and pay our respects to the elders past and emerging and recognizes their continuing connections to the land, waterways and community. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hi there, I'm Dee, your host, and you're listening to Teaching Journey Podcast, Connecting Through Early Education, episode 21. In this episode, I sat down with Carrie Rose, who has been in the sector for 35 years and is the founder of an early child consultancy called The Rose Way. Our chat went on for more than an hour, and I want you to jump straight into the recording because there is so much to unpack in this episode. Carrie spoke about her challenges in the early days as a teacher journey and with working with the people with different dispositions and pedagogical practices. She shared her reflection of her own traits and how it influences her relationship with people, her leadership style and the drive to the continual motivation after 35 years in the sector. And I really resonated with her when she described how well she knows her personality traits to the point that she recognizes her unique way of recharging. She described herself as an extrovert and being with people, learning new things, or starting a new project is her form of self-care. And I really resonated with that because for me, I'm an introvert, but my self-care looks very much like her. Hence, this is how the podcast was born. But it took so long for me to figure that out, that my way of recharging does not look like the norm as what the world tells us, that self-care is being still and quiet. And I love how she's so sure about her ins and outs of her personality traits, that she uses it as a superpower. Towards the end of the recording, I asked her, what's your vision for early childhood? And she spoke passionately about the current climate of the quality of education and the power discourses in the decision makers within organizations. And I want you to listen intently to the messages and the figures that she was describing and leave you with these questions to ponder on at the end of the podcast, which I will also leave at the end of the show notes. What does quality of education look like to you? What are you seeing in practice at the moment? And do both your vision and realities are aligned? What are you doing in your everyday practice that reflects on your vision of quality early education? How can you, as an early child professional, close the gap to the quality ratings that we see at the moment? And I'm going to leave the link to the SQL report that Carrie was referring to. And lastly, where and how can you access information to expand your knowledge or practices on early education? So think about keeping yourself informed with updated newsletters, finding your tribe, joining a network group or attending the conferences. But it's really about finding what works best for you. And I hope that by educating ourselves of the realities of what the sector is at at the moment, would motivate and drive us to rethink and reflect on the impact of change that we can contribute to the access of quality early education for all children in Australia. So here it is, episode 21 with Carrie Rose. Hello listeners, I would like to start with acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're recording today and I'm currently on Bulebeki land of the Warujuring country and the Wararong people. And Carrie, which country are you currently on right now? Um, so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land that I'm honoured to be on, work, play and create on the Mijin, Brisbane, the place of the blue water lilies. 
It's the land of the Turrbal tribe, the original inhabitants of Brisbane. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And yeah, we would like to pay respects to all the elders, past, present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening to this recording. A big welcome to Carrie Rose to the Teaching Journey podcast. So great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Um, and let's kick straight into it. Uh, could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners and share with us as well how long you've been in the early year sector? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Carrie Rose. I'm a qualified early childhood teacher. Um, I've been um, around this space for 30 plus years. So um, I've worked as an assistant right through to an approved provider of a service. Um, so I have, um, I guess, exposure and experience to lots of different um, parts of the early childhood sector. I've engaged in two study tours to the schools of Reggio Emilia. Um, first one was in um, the year 2000, and then I went back again in 2012 and draw some stuff from that. I love to uh, collaborate, so I've done lots of collaborations with different projects and organisations which have taken me to places like um, the Harlem Children's Zone uh, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and also um, have... Uh, written and published some uh, journals and books as well. So kind of a bit diversified, I guess, in the way in which I work. But I also have been a consultant um, along this path in parallel to my teaching career, supporting other early childhood services and uh, educators through training and uh, leadership work, uh, as well as pedagogy. Yeah. So you've worn many, many hats throughout the years. How many years uh, is this period? (laughs) How many years is it all together? Um, it would be, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing some math now, uh, it would be, I was 18, I'm 52, so 35? Decades, yeah. 35 years, yeah. yeah, years, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a very, very long time to be in the sector um, for and, and still to maintain in the sector and to contribute uh, in different ways as well. Um, yeah, I I feel like that's part of the longevity of my career anyway is that I've diversified at different times and been able to tap into different parts of the sector, including lecturing. I did lecturing at the South Bank Institute for about eight years while my children were small um, and younger and, um, yeah, just, I guess, kind of navigated my way through different places and um, roles. Yeah, and what are you currently doing right now? So from uh, the end of 2022, I am I um, just am consulting now. So uh, this is the first time I haven't had um, kind of two things going on in my life. So it's been quite a transition, but really enjoying the space of supporting other educators and supporting services to just continue on their journey of learning and growing in early childhood. Yeah. And share that knowledge that you've built and yeah. established. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess going back to 35 years ago, where you just started in the sector and um, what was that like for you? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, It was, um, you know, the first probably five years, I think I could reflect back and say that I learned most of my values of early childhood and what it was to be in that space from both great experiences and some really bad experiences with people and um, workplaces and things like that. 
And I think, um, you know, I remember my first job as a childcare assistant. I just left school. I was very excited. I always knew that I wanted to work with children. I'd been doing that since I was sort of three three years old with my bears and, you know, setting up a classroom downstairs and those sorts of things. So it was kind of like all this stuff was coming into play for me. And I remember my very first day driving there, like very vividly, and I had to catch the bus and I was on the bus and I was really nervous and I walked in and the people were just so welcoming and the children were just so loving and so caring and so interested in me. Um, I just knew from that day, this is where I want to be and what I want to do. So it was a, it was a, um, there was a lot of challenges. I think when you're young and you're starting out in a space and you know, there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of people telling you what to do and you know, those sorts of things. But I started in a, a, a good space. So that really helped me. Um, I think that first 18 months there really helped me cement that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so you spoke a little bit about the challenges that you had and how that really shaped, you know, in terms of who you are as a teacher. What were the challenges that you were facing then? I think for me, it was uh, the first sort of challenge that really sparked for me was watching things happen that I thought, that could be done better or that could have been done really differently. And um, and in things in particular around um, how um, people were responding to children's different emotions and behavior. So even as a 17 and 18 year old, I was sort of watching thinking, I think that could be done differently, but didn't have enough knowledge to know what that alternative might look like. Um, so I found the limitations a challenge, which seems really interesting, you know, like, but it was the, it was this, in my heart, I knew that it could be different, but in my head, I didn't know how. And so that really pushed me to get straight into my diploma and get started on that. And of course, at that time, you didn't even have to have a qualification to work as an assistant. So, um, you know, there was no need or regulatory requirement for me to start studying, but I just knew I had to learn more and I had to go and do more. So that was one of the challenges was those limitations around knowing knowing it, it could be different or feeling that feeling that it could be really different to this and not really knowing how to kind of do it forward. I think the second um, biggest challenge, which which I think has probably even shaped me more than anything, were people, um, the different people that I came across who just wouldn't budge on anything that they thought, just, just had no ability to even listen to someone else I always used to think when I was younger, it was because I was it was my age and I was in a position, you know, that was um, a lower level than them and things like that. But I think as time went on and I went into different positions and I learned that actually, no, this is a characteristic of people. There are people that have this as a value set and a characteristic that I don't want to do anything different. I'm happy with what I do. I'm not, you know, and, and so for me, that was a real challenge, um, I think, because you know, I'm somebody who is always really open to uh, new ideas. Tell me a little bit about why you did that. I don't, I've never seen that before. I don't understand that. And, you know, even if I don't necessarily feel initially that I agree with something, I go in with curiosity. And so I think that's a natural sort of disposition of mine. And so when I would come across these people where that definitely wasn't their, their disposition at all, 
Um, but they also had no interest in, in doing anything different or learning anything different. That was really challenging for me. So I kind of felt like I needed to keep moving in a direction where perhaps one day I could influence that change. That mm-hmm. was probably the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of people, I myself, have faced through that challenge where, you know, you feel like you really, really want to try because you're passionate, you're driven, you yeah. care so much about you know a certain idea or a certain way i guess and, and you know we also do need to respect that the beauty of the sector is that we all come from diverse background and so that means you know we might look at things differently or we might do things differently we've got different you know self-identity and different pedagogical practices and we do have to respect that but there are fine lines between us moving together cohesively and collegiality for the best interest of the children and the community as well so I guess what what were the steps and measures that you took then during those challenging moments? I think um, one of the one of the key strategies when I look back was I didn't realize it at the time, but it was probably role modeling. Mm-hmm. So I was I would always stay very integral to what I thought was the right thing to be doing based on what information I had at the time. And I always continued to have curiosity, even when I was feeling frustrated with those situations. And so I would, I guess I learned really quickly how to ask certain questions so it didn't actually really annoy the person or they didn't get cranky with me, but kind of saw it as an opportunity to tell me about what they do and why they do it. So it's that ability to be able to say to someone, you know, tell tell me what you, you know, you're thinking here um, and getting them to talk about it so that you can get some more understanding. And so I guess I, I started to become um, very good at navigating myself through these little pathways. Um, and, and so I was taking in all these different bits of information and then kind of mushing them all up together to create my own understanding of those things. I think with people that particularly in those sort of situations, um, the, the, Probably not the worst, the worst is probably not the right word, but um, the most unsuccessful strategy is butting heads with somebody. And um, I, so I, 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 I'm fairly strong-willed and I'm, you know, I'm fairly assertive as a person in general. And so you know, definitely learnt sometimes the hard way about that's not a strategy that generally is going to work. And, um, and, and particularly if you're not in a position where... Uh, you know, you're seen as anybody of equal even, let alone, you know, you're in a position below. So for me, it was always about navigating around those people and just trying to be really creative in the way that I approach different things or that I did a lot of role modeling of things that I believed and then looked and watched for responses around that and noticed how the children responded. So I drew a lot from the way the children were responding to me. And so that became a very powerful tool for me because there would be teachers, for example, who you know, the, the children wouldn't even listen to them, but they were listening to me. And so that made those people interested in what I was doing. Why are they listening to you and not to me? And so so I was able to kind of influence, even at a young age, I was, you know, without realising it, I was actually influencing practice just by doing the things that I felt were going to be in the best interest of children. Um, so, I mean, it certainly changed and, and in, in different positions you have different um, elements of... Um, power and, and I always I always find power is a really interesting word because people see that as a real negative 
but I don't. I, I don't because I don't see power as something to hold over people. It's an opportunity where you can make really influential decisions, and that's a good thing. You know that that's actually a really good thing. So it's about making sure that we, um, you know, have that sort of understanding. And so I learned about power in a negative way from people that I worked with that then taught me about how to use that opportunity that we can have with power in these really positive ways. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And I think that take on power and looking at it as an opportunity of, you know, change, an opportunity of, you know, uh, looking at things in a whole different perspective where I can contribute to some way um, and an active participant of this change because I'm in this position of power and I'm going to use this power for for a good purpose. Um, And I guess my next question would, perhaps overarch both of your challenges. You, you know, the, one of the challenges that you spoke, the, your first challenge that you highlighted was that gut feeling, that kind of knowing that, all right, this doesn't sit well with me. I don't really know what to do. My heart's telling me one thing. My brain's, my eye's telling me the whole other thing. <laughs> um, and then your second challenge was, you know, working alongside with people with different pedagogical practice. And my question is, having those difficult moments where you you know you needed to do something or say something because, you know, we know that open communication and reflective practice is uh, one way for us to improve in terms of working together as a team. How do you have those difficult conversations when, you know, you've got the other person who's not going to make change and, you know, there are... Um, systematic uh, ways of doing things that he's been doing for a very, very long time. This has always been how it is. Don't question. This is how we've always been doing it. Just do it sort of responses. And you know that it's really, really important to reflect and change. And also your gut is telling you that this doesn't sit well with me. What would your advice be for those people who actually go through that challenge? I think there's different advice depending on what position you hold uh, again because it comes down to can you you know ha- how much um opportunity do you have to influence change in a service you know a nominated supervisor or center director for example has got far more influence on that than somebody who is a trainee but i think it's everybody's responsibility to be trying to have those conversations and if if we're in a position where we're not the decision maker and you know but but our gut is saying this is this doesn't feel right or i'm learning something different than what i'm seeing here and this person's just saying this is how we've always done it we have opportunity i guess to seek out the people that align with us Mm. and that that's what i kind of talk to people about is you know, find the people, find your tribe, find the people that are in your service where those conversations are really inspiring and kind of motivate you and drive you and excite you and work within the scope that you can work with and try to influence collectively up. And that's, that's hard, but I think it's, it's, uh, um, it's more motivating when you've got people that are aligned with you and you're feeling really inspired and you can as a collective, go to your centre manager and say, hey, we've come up with this really good idea that we'd like to try and, you know, what do you think about this? And, you know, there's four or five of you that are kind of coming, you know, to say, hey, we're really keen for this. So I think that's when we want, when we need to influence art, we've got to find our tribe. We've got to find the people that are going to keep us driving and motivated because 
when we are in isolation and we're working with people who um, you know, are very, very stick in the mud, not changing, I'm not interested in anything you've got to say, it's a very demotivating space. And so if we're in a service where everybody's like that, then maybe that's not the right spot for us. You know, like I'm not certainly not encouraging people to, to centre hop, but I certainly found in my career that there would be times where I would think nobody here is my tribe and I'm not going to go anywhere here. I'm just going to fizzle out and, you know, feel like I, I've got nothing left. And so you've got to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with those people. I think at the, in the other spectrum where you have influence over change and you're um, leading somebody who, or a team or, you know, certain staff members who are uh, not interested in actually moving forward or are openly kind of shutting that down, for me, I think um, I see a couple of things that happen that um, work against the team as a leader. So I'll, put, I'll say those first and then I'll talk about some of the strategies I would use. But I think often that's um, addressed collectively as a whole team and it's almost like we hope that the people that are not doing the right thing go, oh, that's me, I'll change. But the reality is that doesn't happen. And so good people then start to either behave poorly because they give up or they leave, right? So that, that's just a reality. If you don't actually address things properly, the people who are actually working really hard for you and, and they, get, they, they see it, they notice it and they get, they get really frustrated with that. From my perspective, I think it's about addressing people. So I would always, um, I think uh, there's a really excellent article and I'm happy to send it to you. So if anybody that listens to this would like to read it, it's um, Whose Monkey Is It Anyway? And it, it's, um, it was actually written in the 70s and it's a Harvard um, Business Journal um, article, but it's so good because it's about, you know, when, when somebody says to you, I've got a problem and you say to them, okay, let me think about it and I'll come back to you. Essentially what this article is talking about is that's you taking their monkey and popping it on your back because now it's your responsibility to find the solution. So I always worked the opposite way. And I, you know, I would always say to people, tell me a little bit about why you made those decisions to do that in your classroom. Tell me why you were doing this. And so it's all about actually, you know, getting people to be accountable for the things and the decisions that they're making. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, well, because that's what we're supposed to do, you then have an opening and go, well, actually, that's not correct. You haven't got the right information. So I'd like to, I, I would like you to start, you know, doing some changes to this. If that's why you're doing it, then I can actually, I can take that away from you and I can say, don't you have to worry about that. That's not actually how it works. When people, um, you know, really dig deep quite often in those situations where they're doing stuff that, that is just not moving a center forward or they're really holding a team back or they're the person that everyone goes, oh, she's always like that, don't worry about it. When we enable that behavior and we enable that ability to work that way, a team is never gonna move forward. You are only ever as strong as that person. And so we have to be able to say to that person, okay, so I've had this conversation with you before. I've noticed that you're continuing with that. Tell me a little bit about why you're making that decision. So it's all about, you know, kind of, saying to people, tell me about your thinking here and just giving people the autonomy to have that thinking and to respect the fact that they think that way, but, but asking them to actually validate it 
is the next level of that. And that so in a in a leadership position, I guess that's how I always work. Tell me a little bit about why you're doing that. And so you get to sort of understand people behave in a way for will or skill. They either are doing it because they choose to do it or they're doing it because they actually don't have the skill to do it differently. And you've got to work out which one it is. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I really like that. And I'm really curious to read the article, the monkey article as well, because yeah, you're right. And I, and I remember that as a leader myself, that people will always come up to me and kind of go, all right, now that's this problem now. So I have a zillion monkeys on my back wanting to yep. make it all work for everyone and ending up carrying that burden. And I needed to make systematic change. And it was really, really hard for me because, you know, you've got people who don't really want to have those changes. Um, and so it was uh, a little bit tricky to navigate. And this is a challenge within the sector, isn't it? Because we we need those skills. We don't have those leadership skills. And it, it's something that we, we need to create opportunities for people and also um, allow, I guess, self-reflection, uh, self-leadership as well within those changes. So how do you Absolutely. find your pedagogical practices? So throughout all these years, how do you navigate yourself through those challenges? And, you know, how do you find something that really works for you? I think the, the short answer to that is you will always navigate to the things that sit well with your value system. And so for me, believing in people, um, I'm, a, I'm a relatively trusting person straight up. I'm very open and uh, I'm very interpersonal. I'm very, I'm, I'm, I love working with people. And so my pedagogy kind of navigated its way to looking at how that can really evolve for children and, and how we can, you know, work in that space. And But I think what really truly develops anybody's pedagogy is the exposure and experience that you have and the people that you've met along your journey. And that, for me, is absolutely true. You don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, trying to be a part of different networks and exposing yourself to different people and conferences and all those sorts of things are integral to grow pedagogical practice because you won't know about something unless you hear it and or somebody tells you about it or you read about it. And so you, you have to really be somebody, you have to be somebody that's interested in finding out what else might be out there. Um, so that's the stuff that has really shaped my pedagogical practice is certain there's particular people along my journey that I can probably pinpoint that have said this and I've thought, what is that? I want to know more. Um, and then there have been absolute experiences that I've had that have cemented that for me. So um, for me, I think the things that start to shape or the way in which it shapes is that it's that it is a journey that you're on and, and I'm a bit kind of cliche with that word journey I think so I think it's a little bit overused these days but it's the path that you take and I guess it's not choosing the path of least resistance it's it's actually choosing the path that is harder because you're always learning something new and you've got to think about it differently and you've got to change something you're doing and but it's also the path that I found most inspiring and that kept me motivated um, and and finding that tribe of people that are aligned with that thinking philosophically it doesn't mean they do everything exactly the same as you but it means that when you're having a conversation you're both starting at a place of belief together about children or about education or about early childhood you know it's it's that space where those are the people that you want to really drive 
with and go forward with. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's my other question. Like, how do you stay motivated? And you spoke a little bit about, you know, finding your tribe. Is there other, mm-hmm. you know, factors that you keep yourself motivated and inspired? I think, um, well, personally for me, it's been sharing practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really get quite a buzz out of sharing something with educators, whether it be one educator or 500 where you see people go, ah, that's really cool. I could do that, you know, that sort of thing. I think that definitely is something for me that I find incredibly motivating. Um, I, you know, it's, I imagine that's what a rock star feels like when they do a concert, you know, like it's it's that moment where you know that you've actually provided something that of joy for someone else. And, and for me in early childhood, that's that space where somebody's gone, ah, oh, that's a new idea and, and I know what that feeling feels like. So that definitely keeps me really motivated um, and why I'm still doing my consultancy and, and, you know, working in that field. I think the other thing, though, for me is always finding a, a, a training or a professional growth or a learning that is not always necessarily pure early childhood but it's skill sets that are adaptable too. So I did a, a, um, it was called an inner MBA. And so it was a leadership through uh, New York University and a company called Sounds True that um, did a collaboration. But it was uh, conscious and mindful leadership. So it was really different, really, really different um, kind of places. And they had people like the the CEO of LinkedIn and and some really big kind of um, people that talked but really talked from a conscientious leadership perspective. And so, you know, that in itself was really um, different. Some of it I didn't feel really related to me, but other parts I found really interesting. So that was really cool. I was really motivated around that. Um, And I think the last thing is about creating. So for me, I'm, you know, I'm just somebody, I'm a creative thinker. And so I like to have new ideas and so I'm always kind of trying to find a new idea that I can start to grow and build and sometimes that might be a new training um, I'm in the midst of creating a new little um, business that will support educators and, and families with young children so that's really motivating me at the moment and so it's always about just not doing the same thing all the time just finding something that's different yeah 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 and i'm intrigued on what you said about conscious and mindful leadership because i think that's so important yeah it's 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 a whole different kind of leadership that is not the traditional way of how leadership is um anymore and so looking at um a a different way of um leading uh team and yourself um is definitely really important so i guess what does leadership mean to you I, I love being in that space and the main reason is because I love supporting and growing others. So, so my, my drive and, and motivation in any position of leadership is about growing all the people in the team to find themselves and to, to you know, help them, I guess, go into whatever space and whatever level they want to. And so... Originally, when I first started in leadership, I just assumed everybody wanted to be a leader. You know, that was my, you know, why wouldn't you? This is so great. You know, it's, it's awesome. And so over time and experience, I guess you learn lots and you make mistakes and all the rest of it. But, you know, I learned that there are 
people, there's definitely some people who are aspiring to grow in and learn those leadership skills, but there are also people who are actually really happy in the position they're in, but are still really interested in learning and growing. And, and so I started to sort of understand in that leadership position that my skill sets and mentoring needed also to be really contextualized and, I, and to, to understand each person. Um, and what, what it was that they are searching for and what their goals and dreams are and how I can support that. And so for me, being in that position to be able to watch and see people develop and grow um, into and, you know, um, you know, and feel really motivated in their positions or aspiring to move forward in their career, that for me is, is the, the high buzz that I get from leadership, you know, that, that how other people kind of, can have that opportunity as well because I had that and that that's that's where I learned a lot of my skill sets from were really inspiring leaders that uh, even at the time I knew that this person is somebody I need to understand why you make these decisions because you're a you're the sort of person I want to be like yeah so I wanted people to feel like I could offer that to them as well and so I always made sure that that opening was there yeah 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 and I guess looking back you been doing this for 35 years or doing many things for 35 years what have that taught about yourself just looking back now i think i think the the first word that comes to mind is that i'm very resilient Mm. (laughs) um and and i do believe that that's a um a tough skill and a tough thing to um navigate through in life in general so i i think you know, the persistence of um, my, my ability to be persistent in whatever my goal was or my dream was or my hopes were um, is something I've learnt that I'm, that is who I am. And, um, and I'm, I'm proud of that in, in some respects. I'm really proud of that because I certainly had some terrible experiences in services, like really, really, really awful experiences. And there were a number of times in my career where in my head I thought, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Um, and so um, I think that resilience and persistence for me is something that I've really learned about myself. But I think the other thing um, that's really concreted for me is that I'm a people person. That's who I am. Um, and I I thrive when I'm with others. That That is my space. And so it doesn't matter what position I'm holding even, it's about being with other people. And so... Um, you know, I think when you can understand some of those traits about yourself, it helps you um, to then know where you're going to be at your best. And, you know, those, so I, I, particularly in my service that I had for 15 years, um, I had very long standing staff and um, some, you know, particularly who had started with me when they were 17 and were still with me when they were 24 kind of thing, you know, so, so just, you know, really going through those really formative years of their life as well as a young adult. But knowing that um, I was a part of that growth, but also that they could rely on me. They knew when things were going to fall over or things weren't going to go great. I wasn't going to kind of ditch and go. I was there for the long haul. I would be there. I was resilient. I would be the person that would be saying, okay, this is really bad, but we can work through this. Let's find another way. Let's, you know, whatever it might be. And so I think, um, 
that, that's where those skill sets really came into play, um, which I had developed inconspicuously from all of those experiences that I'd had, but then they came to the surface when I really needed them. Yeah. 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 And when we talk about, I guess, understanding our own traits and and to understand that that requires a lot of vulnerability with yourself as well to be able to un- unpack that on your own. How do you navigate all of that? Was that something really simple? Was that something that you took for a really, really long time? You know, say, for example, I'm a people person and I like people, but, you know, that might not work for our people. And how do I navigate all of that and tone down and, you know, tone up? How do you do all of that on your own? Well, you don't, I don't think. Um, I certainly didn't. I think part of it is um, being vulnerable to the mistakes you make. And I certainly have made lots of those along along my journey. And I think it, the you know toning up and toning down is a really good example because I'm also an extrovert. I'm I'm quite vibrant, you know. Like I'm I'm this I'm the person that's like, hey, come on, everybody, you know that kind of thing. And so, as a leader, realizing not everybody has that personality is a, is a a learning in in itself. And so it took me a little while to recognize that just because somebody wasn't as extroverted as me doesn't mean that they're not as passionate as I am. Mm -hmm. And I get that comes with experience and, and just being curious about other people and why, why you not, you don't even look excited. Oh, I am really, is that your excited face? (laughs) You know, that kind of This is my excited face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and going, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, we look different when we're excited. Okay. I get it now, you know, and, and they're little simple things, but it's the ability to understand that you're that people are different from you. I think that's the the real key to it is, you know, that respect of the fact that people have different personality to you. People will deal with things differently. People will actually attack a problem differently, but land at the result that everybody's wanting, and that that's actually okay. That comes from experiences it comes from sometimes people pointing that out to you when you haven't realized it and being open to listen to that it comes from um you know where you failed um and and, you know failed is probably not the right word i don't think anyone fails i think you're always trying to do the best you can at the time you do it it's just not the right way to do it at the you know it doesn't work out the way you want um but being you know, to have the resilience to be able to go, okay, well, I didn't really do that the best that I could. And, and I need to think about that differently next time. So I think all of those things kind of come into play, but there are definitely, uh, I think any, and I imagine on this podcast, when you talk to different people, a common thread, there are people you meet in your journey that actually are instrumental at a certain time. And I think most people, if they reflect back, will have at least one of those people in their in their career that 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 they realize, even if they didn't realize at the time, they realize in hindsight that that person was very instrumental. So for me, I always feel really lucky that I've had a number of those people, both personally and professionally, that make you stop and think about why you're doing it. Um, and so you've got to be in that space, I think, to be able to keep moving um, kind of forward. And so how do you look after yourself? And, you know, with all of the projects that you have and lots of different journey that you've undertaken for the past 35 years, how do you keep yourself? You know, I, I know that we spoke about motivation, but also looking after yourself as well, your own well-being. Yeah, it's a really good question because I'm a workaholic. Um, yeah. I'm also a perfectionist. Um, 
I'm an extrovert. I never sit still. I'm pretty sure I've got ADD. So I just, it's a big space, you know, to kind of navigate in. But I, I walk every day, no matter what. That is a definite kind of centering for me. I don't even listen to music or anything. I just, I just walk and I listen to the world. I listen to the cars. I listen to the birds. I listen to, you know, whatever's happening. Um, that, so that is something I do every single day as a, almost a mental health kind of starts my day. I think um, I I play team sport and um, I've got friends who I've been friends with now for 40 plus years that we play softball. And so that is something that is an absolute outlet for me. Um, I'm with them. We're, we, we just, you know, we, we spend. So for me, it's about being with people. So my downtime is actually not on my own. My downtime is when I'm I go to coffee with friends or I, you know, go out with people or my husband and I go out for dinner or whatever, whatever it might be. But doing, I, I'm a doer to relax, which is you know, kind of a little bit different, I guess, to some people. But that's that's really important for me. I think the other thing, though, is um, it, it sounds funny, but self-care for me is about having something new that I'm really excited about. And it can be something really small or something really big, whatever. It might be a piece of furniture I'm restoring or um you know at the moment it's this new project that i'm working on and um and so that really fills my bucket like i feel really good when i feel like i'm doing something that's new and so doing something new is important to me i've learned to cook different things and you know i I just i always just find something that is new that that that, that's how i kind of look after myself because i know how important that is for me and I know how I feel when I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's also important to highlight as well because self-care looks completely different from one individual to another. And for you, it's about keeping yourself busy and, you know, tapping into, you know, coffee dates and, you know, chats with people and going to softball and that's looking after yourself because you're surrounded with people. And that also tells a lot about the work that you've done within yourself that you know that, all right, this is my characteristic. I'm an extrovert and this is how I feed off energy and recharge essentially. And that's really important for yourself. So what's your uh, vision for early childhood? With all the work that you've been doing, a lot of consultancy work at the moment, what would you like to see uh, within the early childhood space? And I usually put it in the most extreme end. Not to say extreme because it's doable if you're a very passionate and driven person. If you're a prime minister, what would you do for the early childhood sector? Hmm. So the first thing that came to my mind when I was looking at this question is what is what is the big vision from my perspective? I always, always come back to the element of what is meeting quality standard and where is that, where's that line in the sand? And, you know, I'm not sure if it's controversial or it's not, but for me I think how, how do we... How do we genuinely provide our children with the minimum quality that's been designated if we are still having a large proportion of educators who are studying a qualification in a like a in a, in a room lead role, for example? So you know, I I think for me, I know I know the trickiness with staffing. I've been there. I understand it. I get it. But I always think about it in this respect. 
I wonder what society would think if our schools were filled, if only 50% of the school teachers um, had to have their bachelor qualification to teach education and the other 50% could be be studying, what would society think about that? And so for me, I feel like that has to change for us to really be able to grow, you know, kind of that. I've been doing a lot of um, reading and research around the spaces where quality is not being met in, in Australia. And I worked out the other day, which is, you know, just my working out, so it's not legitimate, you know, not full, full on verified, but I estimate that there's probably half a million children in Australia that are attending an early learning service that's not meeting quality standard or has yet to be assessed. And so in a sequence, percentages it actually only equates to about 11 percent of the services in australia now that's a good rating right 90 percent are doing meeting or above but for me when i look at meeting meeting is is really basic like it's pretty basic you know so it's a it's a good result in some respects and um you know i'm not certainly saying that those services are not good but it's also that standard is not high like it's not high and so when we've got half a million Australian children who are not in an early childhood service that's providing a fairly basic minimum standard, for me as a Prime Minister, that's what I'd be addressing, you know, because I think in particular areas, and certainly where my service was that I had was in um, Logan, in, in Queensland. Logan is an identified community across Australia. It's, it's one of the top five that have the most vulnerable children in Australia based on the Australian Early Data Census results. So in Australia, um, one in five children go to school um, with one or two vulnerabilities. In Queensland, it's one in four. And in Logan, it was one in three. So, you know, it's significant. So there's 30% of children in that community that are starting school in vulnerabilities of development and there are over 30 percent of early learning services in that community who are not meeting quality i just for me i think you know what's happening here like why we and and some of some services you know like if you get that result it really doesn't make a difference you don't have to you don't have to improve next time you can get that same result and in some cases, over and over and over and over again. So, you know, if we really want to grow our status as a sector of education, then there are things like that that we actually have to start thinking about. And the reason that it, it's a challenge for government and it's a challenge for society is because the society needs early learning services so that they can work so it's still economy based it's not education based and so for me if i think about the vision for early childhood i feel like the first thing that i would change is that if you're going to run a room and be in charge of an educational program for young children you must have finished your diploma as a minimum as a minimum you know no more studying your diploma to be a room leader some some people are just signed up for their first unit as a, in a diploma and they're in charge of that educational program for three and four-year-old children, yeah. you know? So I think for me, the vision is not the 90%. It's actually the 10%. We should be doing better. We are a first world country. We should be doing better for those children. We definitely should be doing better for those children. And I think more finance needs to be invested in 
those services that are um, struggling to meet quality standard and having support to go in there and actually help them, not judge them, not, not go and assess them again, but proper programs that can actually go in and mentor and help them and show them some very simple things that are going to improve practice um, and create a happier workplace and potentially create um, less turnover of staff and, you know, all those sorts of things. I think, I believe, genuinely believe it's doable. I genuinely believe that's doable. Um, but I think we're sitting on the fact that, oh, well, we've got 90% and that's a great result. Um, but for me, I don't feel like it is. So my vision would be that actually <laughs> we're sitting at 100%. We should be striving for that. That's yeah. what every child in Australia deserves. Yeah. That's what I believe. And when you put it into a figure like that, that half a million, yeah. half a million of children, half a million. that is a significant... And, and you know, that's that's based on those services averaging between um, 85 and 100 children a day, mm. right? So having, you know, I've sort of went, okay, well, if you've got that many um, children a day, on average, you'd have this many families, so that would be that many children. So that's that could that could actually potentially be a lot more because mm. there are 200 place services now. Yes. Right? So so that's an average. That's just an average. So it, I don't think it would be any less than that, but it most certainly could be a lot more than that. And even to just sit with that number and sit about, you know, when we talk about advocacy role within the sector, what it is and how it is that you can leave a mark or a legacy, sit with that number and think about what it is that you can do. And the small little part, you know, just a small little dent that you create within the sector will make a whole world of a difference. And we actually shift, and it, it could be really something really simple. And this is what I mean, like if we just stop referring ourselves as childcare only, but look at us as an education as a whole, you know, recognize that we are making a difference to early childhood all the work that we do with the children. It's not just going in and just, you know, doing your work and then leaving. It's a lot more than that. You're, you know, empowering children. You're shifting their mindset and you, you know, you're making changes within the whole community about what early education is. It is a knock-on effect that we don't see perhaps, but a lot of time I hear from educators who are burnout or exhausted and who are in a space where you know they cannot feel like they could make a difference like you said you know if that's not the space for you look somewhere else because you know we want passionate people we want driven passionate people within the sector who are experienced who love their job and who who still have space to grow um yeah and be with the children and that's a dent that you're making within the sector and it could be that one percent of a center that you're in and that is a difference because you you're 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 closing the gap essentially yeah absolutely and you know i think it's also comes down to again potentially a bit controversial but you know i think the the bigger organizations that have multiple services the people that are in these um operational positions making decisions about the paperwork that people have to do this yeah. programming that that this ridiculous amount of programming yeah. and documentation and online and do this and you have to do this every day and this every day and this every day and this every day. and and you know we you know people are doing all this work in their own time and they need to take some responsibility and accountability for burnout because mm. it's the decisions that are out of those uh, those educators power 
It's those decisions and the ridiculousness of those decisions. Like I see some, you know, kind of programming templates that that are actually from the 1990s yep. you know that that's yep. that's how i programmed in 1990 yep. you know yep. like we are in 2023 yeah i've seen checklists still going on like yeah. <laughs> yeah so how how are we still in this space mm. where whole organizations have got people in leadership positions who have not even themselves engaged in enough professional learning to be able to move that organization or inspire that organization to to actually move forward and this is why people this is why lead educators burn out yeah the amount of programming is absolutely ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and not needed not required you know and so we can actually have amazingly quality pedagogical documentation and planning and programming without having to do that and you know and and that that these are the things this is part of the working towards element. And, you know, it's mm. like they have to take responsibility. And that, again, as I said, it's probably a bit controversial and I no doubt will put a few noses out of joint, but it's the people in those operational decisions sitting in head office yep. who are, you know, getting their teams yep. to do the thing that they did 25 years ago. Yep. You know, that that doesn't work. Go and, go and retrain. Go and you know, do something better or get some advice from somebody or be inspired by somebody do something, but stop doing that. You know, we can't make change because, you know, there's such a large percentage of early learning services um, that sit in the private sector, right? And I was one of those. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're all poor quality. And that's the other Correct. stigma that I, has I, to go. I completely but agree. I do believe, though, that there are, um, there are, um, a proportion of services who are making poor decisions, mm -hmm. creating high turnovers of staff, which then creates low quality all the time. And so they need to be accountable for that. Not not the director, not the educators, but the people that are actually making those decisions. And until that happens, we won't be able to shift because they, you know, when we talk about power, there's a lot of power there, you know, yes. there's a lot of educators, there's a lot of children affected, you know, yes. all those sorts of things. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like we do have to get you to be a prime minister then, Kerry. Like... <laughs> oh, I don't think I <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's finish off with one last question. Um, one advice you would tell your beginning teacher or beginning self when you started, you know, 35 years ago, what would that be? But yeah, this was really interesting when I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I think I wrote down, you know, keep learning and search for new ideas, but I did, I do that anyway. I, you know, I think I naturally did that. So if I had to go back and provide a piece of advice now that I didn't kind of, that I, you know, that, that would be a new piece of advice, I think it would be to forgive yourself. <sighs> I think, I think I think that's actually what it is. You know, the more I think about it, it's about don't be so hard on yourself, you know, mm. um, and everybody that listens to this podcast who, um, you know, identifies as a perfectionist will understand this is that very when you are somebody who is forever striving to actually be at your best and do your best, you are also your harshest critic, harshest critic. And, um, and so I'd probably, I'd probably advise to just go a little bit easy on myself um, because it, as much as that's 
you know, been pivotal moments and I've grown and stuff. It's also been a lot of emotion that I probably didn't need to invest in, you know? Um, and so I, I could have got potentially to the same place I'm at now without being as harsh on myself. And so, you know, that, that would probably be my advice. Yeah. 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 And I love how you said that you could potentially be at the same space that you yeah. are now regardless of whatever it is and you know how you invest your emotions then you're still there because that is your your drive that's your pathway that's right. and i and love that, was that. Never like, waver. Yeah, yeah that that you know you truly believe in that that is amazing i'm having goosebumps and also i'm tearing when you oh, said nice. you need to you know forgive yourself and i think that's the hardest thing that we do as well you know we we love our job we love we're so passionate but yet we're so hard on ourselves because every small little thing from you know how you run your program or how you do your uh, group time I often hear from my students like oh that did not work at all oh my gosh I'm not a teacher I cannot engage within a, a group time I'm like no that does not define you as a failure like that is an opportunity for you to grow um, yeah. And yeah, you're right. We are very, very difficult on ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Carrie. This has been an absolutely privilege to have you in the podcast. And I'm very, very certain that whoever who's going to be listening in, who are going to be inspired uh, and motivated by an hour of you just talking, it's just oh. absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much, Carrie. Oh, thanks for having me, Dee. Thank you for listening to Teaching Journey Podcast, Connecting Through Early Education. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear your feedback or even reach out to us if you would like to share your teaching journey with us. Connect with us on Instagram by searching for Teaching Journey Podcast. For links of your guest speakers, resources and reflections mentioned in this episode, check out our show notes. We hope to have inspired you today to continue your journey of self-reflection and authenticity contributing to the ripple effects of reform of early education. See you in the next episode.